Welcome to Morning Soap. At Fusion Church, our desire is to see everyone attend church and hear from God daily through His Word. The Bible reveals God's responses to various situations, and through daily devotions, we can reshape our thought patterns, transform our minds, and become more Christ-like. Join us here every Monday through Friday as different pastors and leaders from Fusion Church provide insightful devotions and teachings based on the day's scripture. For the current SOAP reading plan, visit fusionchurch.cc soap and join us as we deepen our understanding and relationship with God. All right, everybody. It is six o'clock. It is that time again. Um, how's everyone doing this morning? It is the Monday after freedom as well. So for some of you, a little bit different feel today. But let me pray, and then um, Nicole's going to read for us, and we'll jump in. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, just the experiences you allow us to have on this journey of life. And as we look into your word this morning, Father, would you again bring revelation and application to us um, so that we can live our lives in a way that honors you and blesses you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you're ready, Nicole, take it away. Okay. Good morning, everybody. Uh, we are in First Peter 1 this morning, and I'm reading out of the NIV version. Uh, starting with verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to the obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have not been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even heaven, even angels long to look into these things. Verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is, re is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. 
Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear, for you know that is that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Thank you, Nicole. Uh, this is quite a chapter, right? As you read that, there's a bunch of things that jump out immediately. But we're going to go uh, step by step. But let me give you a little... Um, background on this first just get my notes back okay so here we go all right so we pretty much know that this is written by um peter and he peter identifies himself right up front as an apostle of jesus christ and we'll talk a little more about that significance of that um the audience, right? So the letter is addressed to the exiles of the dispersion or other other um, other translations use other phrases like foreigners, exiles, but basically it indicates it was written to Christians scattered throughout various regions. Um, it's believed that these believers were likely facing persecution um, due to their faith. Um, as far as the date and historical context goes, um, the exact um, dates are not known, but it's generally believed that this was written around in the mid-60s AD. So this is the time when Christians were experiencing a lot of persecution under the Roman Empire, particularly under um, Emperor Nero. Okay, so it's a little bit of a setting. So let's jump in, um, verse 1. So Peter starts by introducing himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So when Peter does this, um, it gives us some significant theological and pastoral and authoritative implications here. So by identifying himself as an apostle, Peter is basically beginning by asserting his authority in the Christian community. So in the New Testament, apostles were considered um, as those who were specially chosen and sent by Jesus to be witnesses of his teaching, death, and resurrection. So their authority was foundational to the early Christian church. So as one of the 12 disciples who walked closely with Jesus during his earthly ministry, um, Peter can claim to be an eyewitness of the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So the first-hand experience of the um, disciples 
basically give them this um, insane credibility, right? Because they were there, they saw it. And so by him saying, I'm an apostle, I'm a follower, I'm an eyewitness, I'm a credible witness. Um, The term apostle is also linked to the Greek word apostolos, which I probably pronounced incorrectly, but it just means one who is sent out. So Peter, as an apostle, is emphasizing that he has been sent out with a specific mission, mission basically echoing you know, that commission that Jesus gave to the disciples in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, when he said, go to all the nations. Okay. Now he goes on to mention um, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So, give you a little more background here on Peter. Now, Peter's name is, actually, I'm going to come back to this section. There's so much in here. I'm going to go a little bit ahead, and if we have time, we'll come back to that. So, he uses the word exiles. And in some translations, we'll see words used like the word foreigner or pilgrims. And the idea behind the word exiles is someone who lives as a temporary resident in a foreign land. Now, when I think about myself, um, I'm a permanent resident in this country. I was previously a temporary resident before I became a citizen. But what really defines our citizenship, right? So what Peter is saying, yes, that we are all temporary residents in a foreign land. And so we're going to break that down a little bit more. But um, Peter is writing to Gentiles, Christians, and he calls them exiles, a name that was usually applied to the Jews. So he called them this because he saw the Christians of his day kind of sprinkled throughout the world as the Jewish people were in the the term they use is the dispersion after the fall of Jerusalem when the Babylonians conquered Judah. So these these places, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia were places where Christianity had extended to in the first um, several decades after the beginning of the church. So it was probably the route that the original um, couriers of Peter's letter followed in distributing um, this letter. It wasn't written to one congregation, but intentionally written to all Christians. So the reference here is just to the spread of his letter. Now, um, exiles um, or pilgrims, we can call them sojourners or travelers, and pilgrims live in a constant awareness of their true home, right? So in my research, when I was working through um, this chapter, I came upon a reference to an early Christian writing called the Epistle 
to Diognetus. Now, the epistle to, and I'm probably not pronouncing this correctly, but the epistle to Diognetus is basically an apologetic work, which means it is a defense of the Christian faith, and it was written to defend Christianity against uh, misconceptions or criticisms from non-Christians. And this was written um, probably in around the 200s. It was written way back as well. And the goal of this letter was to explain the uniqueness of Christianity and the moral and spiritual superiority of the Christian way of life. So we recognize that even way back, there were references to defending Christianity. But a specific um, part of this letter talks about um, the temporary and transient nature of earthly life, Christians are portrayed as people who recognize that their true citizenship is in heaven, and they view their time on earth as a temporary sojourn or journey. So, again, this is highlighting that our time on earth is temporary, our true citizenship is in heaven. So let's talk a little bit about that. So what does it mean to have true citizenship in heaven? Okay, there we go. So it's often referenced in Christian theology, and it involves an understanding of one's identity, one's allegiance, and ultimate destination. So here's a couple of points. Um, that capture the idea of the essence of having true um, citizenship in heaven. So here we go. One is identity and belonging. So true um, citizenship in heaven means that a person's primary identity is rooted, so it's rooted in our relationship with God through what? Through faith in Jesus Christ, right? It goes beyond um, affiliation with a particular nation or country, I was born in another country, as many of you were, as citizens of heaven, and we recognize ourselves as a part of God's kingdom, belonging to a spiritual family um, that transcends cultural, ethnic, and national boundaries. So true citizenship is in heaven. Point two, um, citizenship in heaven means we have allegiance to God's kingdom values. So every country has laws, values, whatever, um, cultures, different things they do. But our citizenship is based on God's kingdom values. So, um, so citizenship in heaven implies a commitment to live according to the values and principles of God's kingdom. Um, this should influence our priorities, our ethics, our behavior. And it's the teaching of teachings of Jesus that guides, gives us the guiding principles for decision making and action. So basically it's God's word revealed to us that guides the way we live. Um, true citizens of heaven seek to embody qualities such as love, justice, mercy, and humility um, as we interact with other, others, reflecting the character of our heavenly king, right? So, and then the third point is um, citizenship in heaven means we have a hope for the future, right? So everything down here is temporary, 
but heaven is permanent. It's uh, eternal. So it installs a hope that transcends the temporal and uncertain nature of earthly existence and involves a confident expectation of an internal and perfect dwelling place with God. And it, it helps us um, navigate and endure hardships with that in mind and to find meaning in the midst of life's complexities, right? So the insurance of a heavenly home encourages us to live with purpose, knowing that our ultimate destination is secure in the presence of God. Well, that's pretty cool to think about, right? That ultimately we have a secured destination that's permanent. All right, so to summarize that, um, true citizenship in heaven involves a deep sense of identity and belonging to God's kingdom, a steadfast allegiance to the values of that kingdom, a hopeful anticipation of an internal future with God, and then this understanding should influence how we live, relate, and relate to others and approach the challenges of life on earth. All right, everyone still with me? We've got through one verse. So let's keep going. All right. So in verse two, it says, um, we've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Okay, so as we dig into verse 2, 3, 4, um, so this idea, he uses the word foreknowledge. So the concept of foreknowledge here, so it refers to God's prior knowledge or intimate understanding of those whom he has chosen. That's us. And this foreknowledge is not just an idea about knowing things in advance, but it implies a personal relational knowledge. So the idea is that God in his infinite wisdom has chosen and set his affection on believers before the foundation of the world. So Ephesians 1.4. So God loved us, cared for us, and had a plan for us before we were even born. Okay. Um, verse 4. For he chose us. Am I in the right place? Okay, this is Ephesians 1, 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Ephesians 1, 4. Okay, and then he says, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now, the sanctification of the Spirit means um, the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as believers. So the word sanctification means being set apart for a holy purpose. So the Holy Spirit is actively involved in transforming and purifying our hearts and lives, making us more like Christ. So sanctification is that journey of being set apart. So we continue to grow to be like Christ. We'll never be Christ, but our goal is to become Christ-like and to reflect character and life of Jesus, right? So that is the process of sanctification, which doesn't end until we reach our eternal dwelling place in heaven, right? So it is a lifelong process. Um, 
So this also emphasizes the Trinitarian nature of salvation, right? So we have the Father's foreknowledge, the Spirit's sanctification, and then the work of Christ, which was his work on the cross. So all three working together in this process. Um, it goes on to say, to use the statement at the end of verse 2, where he says, sprinkled with his blood, which just symbolizes um, the cleansing and forgiveness achieved through um, Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. Just reminding us that this was bought with a price. It wasn't free. God gave himself in the person of Jesus um, to sanctify us and redeem us. All right, then he finally ends that verse by saying, grace and peace be yours in abundance. So what is grace? Grace refers to God's unmerited favor on us, demonstrated through the cross, right? So God's grace was um, undeserved, but yet he gave it to us through the giving of his son. And peace denotes the well-being that comes through that comes through reconciliation with God. So through what Jesus did and our acceptance of God's gift of grace, we can attain peace. All right, let's move on to the next couple of verses, verses three to five. Um, the title is Praise to God for a Living Hope for that section. So I guess the question we can ask ourselves is, what does it mean to be saved and to live a saved life? So verse 3 says, Praise be to the God and Father, and in other translations, it uses the word um, blessed. So the passage begins with a praise of blessing um, directed towards God. And this is a common biblical expression of worship and the acknowledgement of God's greatness. So, right? so praise be, bless you, God. I mean, in this context, we are specifically addressing God, the Father of Lord Jesus Christ, highlighting the Christian understanding again of the triune God. So God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. Um. So then goes on to say, uh, we have a new birth into a living, he has given us a new birth into a living hope. So again, this echoes um, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John um, in John 3, emphasizing a spiritual rebirth, if you remember that story, or regeneration, and not merely reform, but undergo a radical transformation. So this rebirth is to a living hope, signifying a dynamic and life-altering expectation that is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the living hope is not a wishful thinking, but actually a confident assurance in the promises of God. And he goes on to say, an inheritance um, that can never perish. So he's reminding us that our inheritance is imperishable, it is undefiled, unfading, which contrasts sharply with our earthly inheritance, right, that is subject to decay and corruption, 
um, our Christian inheritance is secure and eternal, kept in heaven. And it just emphasizes the future-orientated nature of our hope again, reminds us of our citizenship, which is in heaven. I mean, verse 5, it goes on to say, verse actually, yeah, verse 5, we were through faith are shouldered by God's power. And so the security of our inheritance is highlighted here. By God's power, we have been guarded through faith. And this is underscores the role of faith as the instrument through which God's power operates in preserving and sustaining us, right? So it is through faith. And again, this also um, highlights the ongoing nature of the process. We are continuously guarded until the ultimate salvation is revealed in the last time. So in the end times, when Jesus returns. Verse 5 goes on to say, um, salvation that is ready to be revealed. So the passage concludes with the anticipation of a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So this again echoes the, the eschatological aspect of Christian faith. So eschatology is study of end times. And looking forward to the consummation of God's redemptive plan, and salvation is fully realized at the return of Christ. So, so we are living um, through faith by grace, but our salvation is only going to be fully played out when Christ comes back again, you know, when we receive our internal inheritance, when we become, uh, we receive. Yeah, basically, um, the earthly body will fade away and we move into our ultimate um, form in heaven. All right, let's move on to verses 6 through 9. Okay, and then if I had to put a heading on this, it would be um, the purpose of trials for those who are safe. So we go through trials, we go through suffering. And Peter says, in this, let me just get back. I have a lot of highlighted things. In this, you greatly rejoice, right? So he starts by acknowledging the present reality of trials, challenges, suffering that we all face. But despite these difficulties, there's a call to rejoice. And if you remember uh, Pastor Daniel's sermon yesterday, talking about joy, right? Joy is not the same as happiness. You can have joy um, even in tough times. So there's a call to rejoice, and the rejoicing is not in the trials themselves, when something greater is rejoicing anchored in the hope and salvation that is secured in Christ. So we rejoice because of what has been secured for us, you know, through the gift of Jesus Christ. And it goes on to say, um, our faith, which is tested by fire. Now, our faith isn't tested. One second. All right, our faith 
isn't tested because the, uh, God doesn't know how much or what kind of faith we have. It's tested because often um, we are ignorant of how much of how much or what kind of faith we have. So God's purpose in testing is to display the enduring quality of our faith. Right. So through testing, we grow in our sanctification. We grow in our ability to live for him. Um, he goes on to say that um, this inheritance, he goes on to say, um, which is of greater worth than gold, which can perish. So if gold is fit to be tested and purified by fire, then how much more our faith, which is far more precious than gold. So God has a great and important purpose in testing our faith. Three things. Faith is tested to show that it is sincere faith or true faith. Um, faith is tested to show the strength of faith. And faith is tested to purify it, right, to burn away the dross from the gold. So um, think about um, think about gold, right? Gold is one of the most valuable, um, somewhat durable of all materials. Yet one day, um, gold will perish, but our faith will not. So remember, remember the testing of Job. Um, in Job twenty three, it says, "But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold." So gold, as it is fired, as it goes through the process, beating the fire, um, the dross rises up to the surface, which is taken off, and that process is repeated over and over again. And it's the same way with us as we journey through our faith journey, right? As we experience trials, as we as our faith is tested, um, we're able to be purified. We're able to gain strength in our faith. All right, verse 9. Uh, let's see, we're at 629. I will do verse 9 quickly, and then we'll jump into a few other things. Uh, for you are receiving the end result of your faith. So the end of your faith is what? It's the return of Jesus and the ultimate salvation of ourselves. So testing and trials are inevitable as long as we are on this side of um eternity as long as we do not see god we must endure through trials and face them with faith and joy verse 8 says though you have not seen him you love him and peter knew that he had even though peter had seen jesus both before and after the resurrection most of us and most of the early christians had not seen him but nevertheless they still loved him so Jesus was no less real because they had seen him. So you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible, inexpressible and glorious joy. And the word used here for inexpressible joy only occurs here in the New Testament. And it describes a joy so profound as to be beyond the power of words to express. That's pretty amazing that we have this inexpressible and glorious joy. Okay, verses 10 to 12 um, are fairly pretty significant because he's just reminding us that um, by acknowledging the Old Testament prophets, 
through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, spoke about the salvation that was to come. So it just highlights the diligence with which the prophets searched and inquired um, about the details of salvation that God was preparing for his people. So it's revealed that the prophets were serving not just themselves, but future generations, including the recipients of Peter's letter. So the things that the prophet spoke about were now being announced to the believers through those who preached the good news. So the apostles and the early Christian witnesses were empowered by the Holy Spirit were now fulfilling those prophecies of the early prophets. Um, there's a phrase that says... In verse 12, it says, even angels long to look into these things. And this section um, concludes by emphasizing the significance of the salvation message. Um, it notes that even the angels themselves long to look into these matters. And these angelic beings, right, you would think that they understand everything, but it's clear that there are some things that were given to us as humans and this underscores the profound and mysterious nature of God's redemptive plan. And even the heavenly beings are eager to understand the depths of God's work in salvation. Okay, we're still doing okay. There's so much in this. We could spend a few hours on this, but we have minutes left. So let me see. Okay, so verses 13 through 17 um, basically, the title there says, Be Holy, right? So it is, what should the conduct and behavior be of those who are saved? So us. So I'm going to give you three points here. So first one is we have to be prepared and sober-minded. So it calls us to action. We are urged to prepare our minds for action and to be sober-minded. This means that we have to be proactive, be alert, um, and also suggest that our life, our Christian lives require intentional thought and focus, right? It can't just be random. We have to be intentional about the things we do. And the specific action is to set one's hope fully on the grace that's going to be revealed at the return of Jesus Christ, and that drives us to the things we do and say. Um, the second point is we have hope in the grace of Christ of verse 13. So we are encouraged to anchor our hope entirely on the grace that will be brought to us when Jesus Christ is revealed. Um, this hope should motivate us for faithful living. And the anticipation of future grace empowers us to navigate um, the challenges of this current life of confidence. So we have a hope that drives us and motivates us. And then point three would be um, we are called to be obedient and holy. So this section emphasizes the obedience of believers as children of God. We are called to reject the patterns of life. Uh, we followed before coming to faith. Uh, we should not be conformed to the passions of our form, former ignorance. Instead, we are to imitate the holiness of God, conforming our conduct to his character. 
All right. So let's see. I'm going to jump a little bit ahead. I'm going to go to verses 22 to 25. Yeah, I'm just going to read this piece again. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. All people are like grass. And all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. So be pure, have a sincere love. We are purified through obedience to the truth, right to God's word. And that obedience should result in sincere love for another. And this is not just a surface level affection, but a deep and genuine love that comes from the heart. So this love is presented as a fruit of our response to the truth. So it's a fruit um, of our response to the truth of the gospel. Um, We are born again through the word of God. And the text is just reminding us here that God's word is not perishable like the the grass or the field or the flowers, right? Those things come and go. They're beautiful, but they don't endure. And it's just emphasizing that God's word brings about new life. God's word is forever. Um, yeah, so the, the imagery echoes the um, biblical wisdom and underscores the transient nature of human achievements compared to the internal and enduring nature of God's word. Um, Interestingly enough, in AD 303, uh, one of the Roman emperors demanded that every copy of the scriptures be burned. (laughs) So they tried to destroy God's word physically, but they failed. Um, 25 years later, the Roman emperor Constantine commissioned... um, scholar to prepare uh, 50 copies of the Bible. And so it just reminds us that God's word is going to endure forever. God's word has been around for thousands of years. Um, It is a living word. It's a powerful word. And the preached word is not temporary or transient, but it's grounded in the eternal and unchanging truth of God's word. So I think that's our reminder today. And in summary, let me just give you a few things that we just discussed here. So one, so application points, right? As we look at 1 Peter, um, we have to live with hope in difficult times, right? We're all going to go through trials and challenges. We should should endure trials with faith. Um, We should appreciate the value of our redemption. It was paid at a great cost. We should live holy lives daily, right? We should be intentional about living in obedience to God because we are set apart and we are called to be holy just as God is holy. We should love one another sincerely, right? Caring for each other with a deep, genuine love. We should recognize the temporary nature of our earthly lives and that we are citizens of an eternal kingdom. 
Um, we should respond to God's word, right? So we should be diligent in applying the biblical principles to our lives. And then remember that we are exiles, right? Right. So that we are we are just temporary citizens and we should keep heaven in mind as our eternal destination. So an eternal mindset. And then we should trust in the enduring nature of God's word to let it be our foundation and guide as we study and meditate on it as we have done this morning. So everyone doing okay? Thank you guys for sticking with us. This is a little bit of a longer chapter. Um, I hope that you will find application and inspiration, um, maybe some next steps as you look at God's word. Let me pray for us, and we will let you get going. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that um, for people like Peter, we have written and recorded your word for us and given us instruction for living. And so, Father, we recognize our the temporal nature of this word. We recognize that we are called to be citizens of your eternal kingdom. And, Father, we pray that we would live in a way that... Um, recognizes the grace you've given us, the cost that has been paid, um, and the fact that we have been set apart to live holy lives. And Father, we thank you that we are able to do that through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Father, I pray for each one of us today that we would be able to love dearly and sincerely and care for each other. And Father, I pray that even today that this word would um, rise up in each one of us as as we live our lives, as we do our work, as we um, interact with others, that you would be made known and famous through our actions and that they would know we are Christians through our love. So, Father, we just pray that your word would um, go into the very being of our lives and that it would be installed at the deepest roots of our being. And so, Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for this time, and we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Have a great day.